Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our final episode focusing on ecologically rich and contributing gardens, today we learn some innovative lessons in built ecology, literally. Rebecca McMacken is an ecologically focused horticulturalist and garden designer. For the past decade, she's been the director of horticulture for Brooklyn Bridge Park, an ecologically-minded landscape constructed from the soil up on repurposed shipping piers jutting out over the East River of New York City. Rebecca and her horticultural team care for the diversity of life within this 85-acre parkland organically and with an emphasis on habitat creation for birds, butterflies, and soil microorganisms, as well as visiting humans. Rebecca writes about landscape management and pollination ecology, as well as serving as the VP of the Metro Hort Group in New York. Rebecca introduced me earlier this year at Metro Hort Group's annual Plantarama event, and I've had the pleasure of hearing her speak several times since then. Rebecca, I am so happy to be in conversation with you today. Welcome to the program. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Jennifer. I want to start out the way I always start out, and, and that is to ask you to share with the listeners your sort of distilled mission statement for your own relationship with plants right now in a sort of abstract, personal, and professional way? Sure. So I think of Brooklyn Bridge Park as a giant experiment. The people who designed the park were all really innovative and forward-thinking, and the community that advocated for the park was really firm in their desires for ecological benefit for people and wildlife. So the park was designed to be organic, and they used mostly native plants, and they considered climate change. And then we, the horticulture team that manages the park, were fortunate enough to take this incredibly large 85-acre and beautiful tract of land in the middle of the largest city in the, in the entire country and use it to not only invite people in for recreation and a real connection to nature, but also to cultivate quality wildlife habitat that exists among millions and millions of unsuspecting people. We consider it our mission to forge the way for those people seeking to integrate wildlife habitat into cities and into gardens in general, because this work is just gonna get more and more important as people urbanize and as the climate changes. Right, right. Um, there are so many great uh, serendipities and surprises for listeners in unpacking everything you just described and how it is exactly what you described, but it's also not exactly what people might think it is. Um, tell us a little bit about you. What, what were your earliest influences and who were the, the places and the people and the plants that pulled you towards an interest in, in being a professional director of horticulture at such an incredible experiment in New York City? 
So I grew up on a hobby farm in Connecticut. I was one of a bunch of kids and I was often left to my own devices. I was able to go out in the woods for a whole day when I was very little in a way that as the now mother of a six-year-old absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) (laughs) But I survived and I'm better for it. And I essentially grew up gardening. It was, it wasn't a separate practice from daily life. It was just how it was like cooking. You know, you just, you gardened, you cooked, it's how you lived. And I never really considered horticulture uh, a career. I was, I was a pretty wild kid. I bounced around, I traveled, I worked in fashion, I worked in the drag scene in New York City. I did a degree in political science and I worked for artists and literary journals just all over the place. And then Near, really on a whim, I went to British Columbia for a master's in biology and studied freshwater ecology. And as wonderful as that was, it was also super brutal. I spent way too much time in front of a computer and not enough time in a canoe where I wanted to be. <laughs> and so when I finished, I moved home to my dad's place to chill out in his cabin and get my long range vision back. And at this point I was 30 and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started teaching yoga and gardening, thinking that for me, they were the same sort of really like fun, therapeutic way to spend a summer, but not for serious people. And I was just totally wrong. I, I found gardening and it was literally the thing I had been searching for my entire life. It was hard manual labor which I loved. Mm -hmm. It was stunningly beautiful. It was art and ecology and just constant experimentation with no end to the learning, you know, still Mm -hmm. to this day. Mm -hmm. I always think it's funny that people are master gardeners because you're never going to master it. And it's, it really was applied science in the best way. Uh, It was just the, the scientific method just over and over and over again. And in the end, you don't need to run any statistics. You just get flowers. (laughs) <laughs> but we get some t- statistics too, which we'll get it's to. That's true. That's true. Um, well, I, I really love that um, the phrase you used about trying to get your long range vision back in a world that is constantly sending us messages to go this way and do this way and what, th- what success is and, and what it isn't. And um, that the garden found you in this moment of re- uh, acquainting yourself with your long range vision is no surprise to me. So you are about what age at this point? And how do you take this uh, revelation and commitment to applied science, applied art, and applied spirituality, which you just described to us? How, How do you then move them into what you are going to do for your livelihood also, Rebecca? So I'm currently in my lower to mid forties. And so this was about, about 15 years ago. Okay. And I was living in my dad's cabin, as I mentioned. And eventually he was like, Rebecca, you have just got to get out of here. (laughs) And I got kicked out. Fledge, fledge. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. Um, And so I moved to New York city to be a gardener for the parks department, which was also very difficult and just completely wonderful. At the Parks Department in New York City, you're really in the trenches. You're like gardening at Coney Island and Washington Square Park. You're dealing with tourists and working with homeless people and yelling at celebrities to get out of the tulip display. And you have to make your own rake when your rake breaks. 
And, you know, it's just this absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous experience. You couldn't, you could barely even call it a job. Every single Parks Department gardener should write a book. And it was incredibly rewarding. People would thank you every day. You saw the difference that you were making in the lives of people, mm-hmm. but it was also just really hard. So I went to Columbia and I got another degree in uh, landscape design. And somehow that was deemed the right background to manage Brooklyn Bridge Park when it opened up a decade ago. And I've been here now for a decade. Wow. That is a uh, a great milestone. And as you noted, still very young as a gardener or a, a, or a park or a garden. Absolutely. You you use these phrases. Uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park is a giant park in the largest city. It's eighty five acres. Will you please describe the history and the actual physical circumstance of Brooklyn Bridge Park? My pleasure. So, Brooklyn Bridge Park is a post industrial park. We are built on top of reclaimed shipping piers. These giant tracts of concrete that were functional shipping piers built by the Port Authority in the 1950s. It's a mile and a half of the Brooklyn coastline that used to be used for shipping in the 50s. And then very quickly by the 1960s fell into disuse because of the way that the container shipping revolution changed the way that shipping was processed. And so there was just this land, this, this, you know, port essentially that was not being used. And the eventually in the 1980s, the Port Authority uh, said that they were going to develop it. And the community of the area immediately organized because they realized that they were going to get commercial development that they did not want in the area. And so they started organizing in 1985 in order to start the process of building Brooklyn Bridge Park. And they it wasn't until the 1990s that they actually got the funding and the plan in place in order to start designing the park. And then we broke ground in the early 2000s and the the park itself opened in 2010. We opened the first sections of the park in 2010. We just celebrated our decade anniversary and we are hoping to finish building the park this fall. (laughs) So it's just been this absolutely massive. It's the largest public works project in Brooklyn since uh, the days of Olmsted. And uh, I think relevant to this conversation is the fact that it is all brought in, all the soil, all the trees, all the materials to build the park have been brought into the site and dumped on a bunch of cement. And so it's really this experiment, again, in constructed hmm. ecology. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an environment that humans have created. Which I think is fascinating because there are so many ramifications to that itself of what is possible what we can do to um, restore is the wrong word, uh, but to improve the impacts of our human impact to date, right? So, and I want I want people to visualize what exactly Rebecca just said. If you think about going to a port uh, anywhere in the world, could be Seattle, could be you know New York, it could be. Uh, down south, you're looking at these large rectangular, you know, 
structures jutting out into a waterway. And they sort of look like, you know, from above, like little Lego pieces lined up, but they aren't contiguous. So uh, describe this, the construction of a a habitat-oriented, organic-oriented idea for a garden from the get-go. It's synthetic soil. It's brought in. How, how does any of this happen? It's it's incredible. The yeah. <laughs> the firm that it's it's amazing to watch it watch it get built. It's wonderful. The firm that designs the park is called Michael von Valkenberg and Associates, and mm-hmm. they work with incredible people who are literally soil designers. We have like I think the best soil designer in the world works for our park. And before we even get to the soil, there are layers of infrastructure. You could consider this park the world's largest green roof mm-hmm. if you were inclined yeah. to. Okay. And then of course there's areas where we built up. Uh, the park was just a flat area to begin with. And in order to block off the noise from this highway that runs the length of the park, the designers came up with this incredibly elegant and experimental solution to build these huge berms. And, and so they literally built these giant berms that separate the park from the highway. And to watch them do it is just incredible. They would put like a, a foot of sort of rubble, of construction rubble. And as much material as possible that, that was used to build the park was taken from construction sites, was reused from demolitions, was, you know, a huge part of our park is actually a subway tunnel that was dug in Queens. That was, they just, you know, drilled the tunnel, took the rock that they had just drilled, put it in a truck, drove it down to the park and dumped it on the park. And that's a big part of the topography of the park is all this reused material. And so we have these amazing berms and they would create a foot of soil, put essentially a construction net on top of it, do another foot of soil, do the same thing and build it like a layer cake Mm. out on the piers themselves. The piers are, as you said, it's like a mall parking lot, just a big rectangle of concrete out over the water. The vast majority of them in this park are held up over the water by thousands and thousands of wooden pilings. And those pilings are uh, sometimes incredibly strong and sometimes being mm. eaten by marine wildlife. And so we must keep the the park as light as possible right. out there. Right. Can't just build and, you know, dump rocks out there. And so what they ended up using in order to build the topography of the sections of the park that are out over the piers is styrofoam is giant blocks of styrofoam that again were netted down and then soil was built up over them. And so it was amazing to watch because it really looks like you're building a model in a design class, except it's in real life. There's these big pieces of foam. And then there's rocks and gravel and then soil and then topsoil and then the plants go all and other infrastructure go on top of it. So it's all very, very much constructed. It's a very, very different environment than Central Park, for instance. Right, right. Then then almost anything, which is uh, really like sort of creative and intelligent design um, being put to really interesting use. And so when you when when you are visualizing one of the piers the flat piers fully constructed about how much height was added and and where does the drainage come from like this is the first thing i started to worry about mm-hmm. it's like where's the drainage 
totally. It's the hydrology is fascinating uh, in general. Um, so on the pier, we couldn't build that high. On the pier, we have, you know, at most a yard of three feet of soil deep, okay. except some of the piers are not on the piling. Some of the piers go all the way down to the ground. Okay. And there, the designers went up as high as humanly possible. They went up 35 feet. Because it, and it's weight a, wasn't as big an issue. Exactly. Okay. It wasn't an issue at all. Mm-hmm. They could go as high as they wanted. Mm-hmm. And the limitations were like safety mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's a real, it's a real joy in a flat city to have a hill. You know, I think that people who don't live in cities take these things for granted. But again, as the mom of a six-year-old, it is just, they can play on a hill for like hours and hours and hours and just go up and down and up and down and up and down. It's amazing to have a hill. And the designers really understood that. One thing that I wanted to mention also, the drainage and hydrology of the site is is really fascinating. So there's a drainage system. Everything goes into the sewer system. Of course, there's storm runoff that also happens. But originally, we had all hoped when the park was first designed that we would be able to pull the vast majority of the park off of irrigation. We really do try and limit the resources that we use. And the hope is that someday the, the park can be you know, self-sustaining, self-regenerating the same, the same way a real, a real piece of land would be Mm -hmm. because there is no aquifer right underneath the soil. There is no way to just regenerate soil hydrology. We have found that the soil goes hydrophobic incredibly quickly. And because the soil is engineered, it's, you know, a bunch of sand, silt, and clay and compost all mixed together and put in the ground. It's not real soil. Real soil takes thousands of years to form. It has colloids. It has clumps. It has biology that our soils are still in the process of, of creating. Right. And so we have not been able, unfortunately, to pull the, pull the park off of irrigation quite yet. But it is our hope that someday we'll get there. And so it doesn't interface with the East River at all, pretty much. Correct. Okay, it so not. it's like sitting out over it, but it doesn't wick up from it or or, or no. drain back into it, which is a great thing. This is Cultivating Place. Rebecca McMacken is the Director of Horticulture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, a diverse 85-acre habitat and ecosystem-based park constructed on repurposed post-industrial shipping piers over the East River. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. The AHS is about to turn 100, but let me assure you, it's quality horticultural information integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world has never been more relevant. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. As soon as you sign up, you will be able to take advantage of the AHS's programs, its reciprocal admissions at public gardens, 
and you'll start receiving its award-winning flagship journal, The American Gardener. I love and learn from every issue. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of my greatest takeaways from this conversation is the impressive potential inherent in our ability as humans to interrogate ourselves and our ways and to innovate our way out of bad habits, of old ways, and of past errors. And finally, our ability to integrate more gently, more productively, and purposefully with nature's ways. My first choice, of course, would not be to engineer our way out of the problems we ourselves have created. My first choice would be that we didn't create these problems in the first place, with our ignorance and our arrogance. And sometimes even with our own well-meaning, because we just didn't know or have enough information at the time. But we have created these problems, and we do continue to do so. Last week, Owen Wormser noted that we have to remember that we got to this ecological moment, one overfed and poisoned lawn at a time, among other human errors, and that's one way we're going to get out of this spot, one garden at a time, contributing rather than extracting and overusing. One garden at a time, growing health and beauty and habitat and reintegration. Rebecca and Brooklyn Bridge Park remind us that we can, in fact, use our past errors, use our capacities to return balance, to nurture life, to support diversity, and to grow better. We're back now to our conversation with Rebecca McMacken, Director of Horticulture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, an ecological and ecosystems-based park and garden constructed from the soil up on repurposed shipping piers on the East River in New York. As we come back, Rebecca shares the original horticultural and ecological goals of the park from its inception 10 years ago, and she introduces us to the scope of her horticultural team. The park originally was always designed to be organic, and the community that advocated for the park was really active in their desire for native plants. Mm -hmm. The designers were already going in that direction. This was something that they cared a lot about. It was Michael von Balkenberg and Associates, and they're known for this sort of work. Mm -hmm. But they were able to talk to regional ecologists and say, you know, we want habitat for migratory birds. How do we build that? How do we plant that and get that feedback? So we have amazing areas of the park that we call ecosystems that are freshwater wetlands. We have three separate salt marshes in our park. We have these really unusual sort of habitats in the park that you wouldn't find in your, your typical urban park. And they're planted for that. We Once we took them on as a horde team, we were able to work with more ecologists and nurseries and you know go collecting plants ourselves that to use in the park. We can also watch the animals as they use the park 
and pay attention to how they use the park and think about how how best to support their use of the park and their life cycles with our gardening, with our planting. So there was this original intent and then we've just absolutely taken it and run with it. And we consider it our goal to not only create this incredible habitat, it's 85 acres, right? It's, it's a lot of land. Yeah. We, have, we have over 15 acres of just garden bed, which is not a small amount of land no. in the middle of the city. That's a huge amount of land if we manage it properly. And so we consider it our jobs to manage this land as wildlife habitat, but also figure out how to do that work and then share it with as many people as possible. That is what we think of as our real job here is figuring this out, getting the information out there so that other people who are also motivated to do this work can do it as well. And then tell us, hopefully there's a network, right? We are constantly learning from anyone we can, we can hear from. And so we're experimenting, we're seeing what works, and then we're turning it around and sharing it with the public. Yeah, which is great. So you keep saying we. Tell me about your horticultural staff. <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great team. I really, I really enjoy being part of this team. There are, let's see, we have 12 full-time gardeners. Uh, when I started, <laughs> first of all, when I started, it was me. Just it you. was me managing contractors <laughs> and I was mowing the lawns and I was, you know, doing all of it. It was amazing. And it was just two piers at the time, but those two piers were like 10 acres. So it was, it was quite a lot. And, um, and now I feel very fortunate to manage a, a, a properly sized team. So there's 12 full-time gardeners that each have a zone in the park. And we have a rotating team of seasonals that assist the gardeners. There's also a deputy director of horticulture, a hort supervisor, and a horticulturalist. And we sort of, you know, we see our job as really facilitating the work of the of the hort team. Yeah. And do you have volunteers? Do you have interns? Is there a teaching capacity yet to the team? So the park has been so focused on construction for the last decade. We've had very little resources, mental or otherwise, in order to turn our attentions outwards and really look at education in the broader community. We are very excited about doing that more in the future. We are hoping to finally launch our internship program next year. We do have a great team of volunteers. We can always use more volunteers. And and yeah, I think that, you know, we, the education that we do is often like this, it's podcasts, lectures, but uh, I, I am very hopeful that in the future, it'll take a more formal, formal bent. Yeah. Yeah. And that is sort of a sign of maturity, I think, you know, is when, when you have enough hands on the ground and, and hands in the soil that you can then start to mentor the next set, that is a, a wonderful, um, kind of coming of age for a staff or a garden itself, I think. So you have all of these different um, habitats that are included as part of the design and that have now been, um, you know, maybe not all of them are 10 years old, but as a whole, the park is 10 years old. You have wetlands, you have woodlands, you have the hills, you have uh I think you have a, a saltwater marsh as well as a, a freshwater wetland. Yeah. And then you have meadows and talk about the use of systems. So you you use this term earlier. We call them ecosystems. Why do you call them ecosystems instead of the wet garden? 
or the meadow garden. <laughs> Talk to yep. us about that that importance philosophically and and where you see our field as a whole um, actually maturing and growing in how we see what our relationship to a garden space is, Rebecca. Sure. So this is a really exciting time to be in horticulture. Mm-hmm. It's just thrilling. You know, we're sort of moving from doing things the way that people have always done them, the way that people did them in England 300 years ago, to really thinking about why we do the things we do, what the reasons behind them are, and developing new practices that address really inviting in the wildlife that it used to be best practice to keep out, to keep your garden sterile was, you know, a way of a way of thinking that is still taught at university horticulture degrees. And at the park, we we definitely have a completely different method of thinking about about our horticulture practice. We think of our ecosystems as systems because they are more than individual plants that are placed in the landscape in order to grow and mature on their own. And I think that that is sort of the the old old guard way of thinking where a, a plant is almost an object, right? It's a commodity and it's something you buy. And that is, we're looking at these uh, plants as living organisms that exist in community with each other, but also soil microorganisms and us and their pollinator partners and the animals that eat their leaves. This It's a web, right? It is a web and it is a system. And in traditional horticulture, you might plant a tree someplace and say, all right, in 50 years, I'm going to have that tree in the exact same spot. It's just going to be bigger. Same thing for shrubs. And sometimes the same thing for herbaceous plants as well. It's a static it's a static, you're painting a picture and it exists in a static reality. Our gardens are not like that at all. They are living, thriving, moving systems that are very much in motion. Some of that is about around necessity because the, everything was planted really tiny and you know you were always going to have certain plants out compete each other and you'd have a bed that went from sun to shade. But most of it is about philosophy, that there is room for movement in our gardens. There's room for regeneration. Our hope, there's so much disturbance in an urban environment. Our hope is that we can cultivate a seed bank, that when there is disturbance, that area can literally self-regenerate. And we're, you know, you're never going to take the humans out of the system. That isn't the goal. But the hope is to try and create systems that work together, that the trees are allowed to form the fungal networks that they need to form, that we can see these brilliant relationships. You know, we, we have this hawk moth, the clear wing hawk moth that is this beautiful uh, moth that looks like a hummingbird and is comes out during the day. And it's the pollinator partner for Menarda fistulosa for the bee balm. And they are, and it's beautiful to see, to see this hawk moth in the, in the park. And we know that that hawk moth is not just visiting, right? You can, it's actually pretty easy to get wildlife to visit your garden. You can have Butterflies come to your flowers and drink the nectar. You can have birds come to your shrubs and eat the berries. That's all actually pretty easy. And we've seen the native plant movement really, you know, nail that one. We are, we're doing that. It it is awesome. But in order to actually support the full life cycles of these animals, in order to really invite them in, we need to look at how they interact 
with our gardens and within their full life cycles? Are they able to reproduce there? Are they able to die there? Are they able to rear their young there? Are they able to eat uh, you know, everything that they need in the garden? And so for this one hawk moth, we look at that hawk moth and we can then go and make sure that that moth has the host plant that is growing and right by the Monarda fistulosa. And then we need to make sure that when the, um, the caterpillar is active and when the cocoon is, is on the ground, we're not raking that um, or pruning off that, those living creatures out of the garden, right? We're making sure that everything stays intact. So we're supporting the full life cycle of that animal. And these interactions, right? It's not about seeing the various animals or the plants as individuals, but more as the dynamics between them. That is really the goal here is encouraging these dynamics. Right. A couple of things are really striking to me here. One is that, you know, we being mainstream white Western gardeners from the Western academic and industrialized Western cultures say, you know, that, you know, historically gardening has been done this way. Traditionally gardening has been done this way. Gardeners have always done it this way. But that is, again, such a funny and um, yep. circumscribed view because, in fact, these systems-based thinkings and workings are returning to you know, land-based cultures the world over. It's just been this sort of like 250 year, maybe just even a little long, maybe 400 years, but it's relatively short in the history of humans on the planet that we got so out of whack with who was the most dominant creature or influence in a uh, a planted environment. And so it, it is interesting to see, you know, what's very, very, very old becoming very, very new again. Um, but but I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that I am seeing this shift because now it's not just, you know, the fringe work or, you know, quote, fringe work of the Xerxes Society or Native Plant Societies or, you know, one person over here and one person over there. We are starting to see this sea change of understanding and expectation and hunger on the part of gardeners everywhere from your peers in New York City to, you know, the suburbs of California of how do we as humans create these beautiful spaces with all of these beautiful creatures, you know, and, um, and and it's just so, ah, it's just such a shift of perspective. It's great, um, and it, but it's, it's marvelous. It's slow. It's slow, Rebecca. Totally. And I want it to go it faster. <laughs> I I do too. And I think that you know everything you said was just so right on. It makes me so happy that these things are are getting out to people. And I think that you know this is the knowledge that we are are learning right now. Is it absolutely is knowledge that people used to have. People on this land used to have, and it was intentionally buried. It was intentionally taken from us and replaced with um, a very toxic, you know, horticulture has a lot to atone for. A lot. They're a very, a very toxic practice that um, intentionally harmed, uh, you know, people and the environment. And so we're, we really are in the process of relearning yep. this stuff. And there aren't books and in order to learn it. But I do love what Robin Wall Kimmerer says about 
that this is this is the work of learning from plants, yes. not just learning about them. Yes. Right. This is the work that we do is really based on observation. And that is how we come up with our ecological horticulture practices. Rebecca McMacken is the director of horticulture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, a diverse 85-acre habitat and ecosystems-based park and garden constructed on repurposed shipping piers on the East River in New York. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Thinking Out Loud this week. I've been on the road these past two and a half weeks, and I've had the fun and enrichment of meeting many gardeners in their own places, having many interesting garden life conversations in each of these places. I was recently speaking to a group on the western slope of Colorado, and a woman said to me, in earnest, I'm not actually a gardener. I volunteer at gardens. I love gardens. I support native plant and regenerative farm work, but I just don't have a green thumb. And this phrase, a green thumb, launched us into a perfect engagement around this sometimes hobbling mythology. What does having a green thumb mean? What does not having one mean? And does this mythology around a green thumb serve us? I don't know. In these past few summer months, I will have met gardeners in Maine, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. Helping one of my girls move into a new phase of their life, I have driven across Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. And in driving through and over and around hills and dales, rivers and creeks, deserts and the continental divide more than once, I can tell you in no uncertain terms that Mother Nature wants to grow. She is all the green energy and spirit any of us could ever want. In a desert, in a forest, on a mountaintop, by a river. And all we have to do, in fact, is watch and listen, learn and try, and try again. The opportunity is there for us every day to practice this green-growing relationship with a planet that shows us exactly how at every turn. Have you heard or or do you remember that wonderful E.E. Cummings poem? I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. So keep getting out there and keep practicing growing. As Rebecca notes, if they can figure out how to do it on repurposed post-industrial concrete shipping piers over the East River, we can figure it out in our front and backyards. And we too can help reweave this greenly spirited world on this 
most amazing planet. We're back now to our conversation with the Director of Horticulture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, Rebecca McMacken. The park is an ecological and ecosystems-based park and garden constructed from the soil up on repurposed shipping piers on the East River in New York. As we come back, Rebecca shares many specific examples of observations that the horticultural team have learned from and which have led to far better ecological understanding and therefore to new horticultural techniques and practices. Gardening is a, is an experiment. And if you're, if you're not failing, you aren't really trying. And if you're not, <laughs> you know, you're going to kill some plants, you're going to make some mistakes. It's, it's just part of the process. I think, you know, we, we are very much in the, in the um, business of trying to invite invite in biology and invite in pollinators, especially. I have this, I have this not so secret goal of having this be just like a butterfly mecca. I want to bring back insane amounts of butterflies into Brooklyn Bridge Park. And to do that, we are planting just humongous amounts of, of key plant species that, that will encourage uh, butterflies, the host plants for those butterflies. And so over the last couple of years, um, I think this was this was before COVID. So a couple of years ago, we were trying to get in the Vanessa butterflies, the American ladies, the painted ladies, and the red admirals. Yep. And so we were planting their plants. We were planting Antonaria and Anaphilis, and we brought them. We got them from really good nurseries. And the Antonaria that came in, we made sure that they did not have systemic insecticides. If you buy a butterfly host plant and it has systemic insecticides like Neonix. The, the butterflies that come to your plant are literally going to die. It is the most tragic thing that you can even buy them. But we made sure with the nursery that they didn't, they didn't treat for, with insecticides or with systemics. And then we got the plants. And thankfully, one of the gardeners thought to test it. And he put a caterpillar on one of the plants and it immediately died. Oh. And it turned out that the nursery had treated the plants for thrips. And that insecticide then, of course, transferred over to our butterflies. And so we just have learned now that it is very, very necessary when we do this work to just be in constant communication with the nurseries, have things custom grown, make sure. And we're big, so we can do that. But homeowners, of course, cannot. And so you really do need to test and then advocate and buy things from places that you know are as organic as you can get. So that's failure number one. Failure number two is that when we actually took the Anaphilus out into the park, we took it out in spring and we we bought it through the mail. The Anaphilus we bought through the mail and we opened it up and just from nowhere, a cloud of butterflies emerged <gasps> and just swamped, swamped the plants, like literally right out of the box. <laughs> so we put them in the back of our little, a little truck and drove them down the greenway of the park. And we had just like butterflies chasing the park, the, the truck. It was amazing. And so we, we got them out, we put them in the ground, we watered them. And I was holding a plant as a butterfly was ovipositing onto it. It was, <laughs> it was like that. It was just so ridiculous and amazing. We're charmed out of our minds and we planted them and the butterflies laid so many eggs mm. on the plants. Mm -hmm. They all hatched. The caterpillars all ate the plants. They ate the plants all the way and they all died. It 
was tragic. It was like a devastation. Uh And so we learned from that horrible mistake not to plant those plants in the spring when the butterflies are actively reproducing in that way. And now going forward, we're planting those in fall. So it is very much, you know, there's, there are no best practices around this stuff. All we can do is experiment and fail and, and succeed. And then, you know, shift our practices and share that knowledge. Right. But that is a best practice that you just demonstrated right there because you didn't then kill the the caterpillars that were eating the plant because you understood that those caterpillars were going to be those moths and those butterflies. And so you you tried to hold yourself back and value the process, observe the process and say, okay, what did I learn from this? And and how can mm-hmm. I adjust to be a better part of this system instead of trying to control the system? And I think that is a best practice that we as gardeners are really, really trying to learn right now. And um, it takes patience and it takes that critical thinking with your observation. Like, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that the caterpillar is trying to kill the plant. It means that we didn't have enough of a plant for the, you know, the number of caterpillars. And even if it's defoliated, that's the other thing. If you wait out a year, you see that the plant didn't die. It will refoliate, but it it needs, you know, there needs to be enough of it so it can keep up with the needs of the, you know, and and it's a supply and demand thing. Um, But- but you learn that it's a supply and demand thing, not a, uh, you know, warfare in which one is, yeah, anyway, it's it's fascinating. Totally. To yeah, I think, you know, the only reason we're able to do this work is because the Hort team is awesome. <laughs> and we have a bunch of really nerdy, you know, there's wide diversity of people, you know, not everyone is, a, is an academic, but there are quite a few, um, you know, ex-academics who are who have degrees in ecology or just people who are very passionate about ecology. Mm-hmm. So we have the people with the knowledge to do this work, which is just really, really incredible. And they are very observant and it's part of their job to, to watch you know, caterpillar behavior right. to let me know if they see a new species that's interesting or a new interaction. We have this one gardener, Pavel, who's our wetland gardener on Pier 1, and he has a wonderful, wonderful garden that is uh, like a chain of ponds that have emergent uh, wetland plants as well as others, and then just an abundance of wildlife. And and he's an excellent, excellent naturalist. And so he recently, we've we've been thinking a lot about cutback. Cutback is this thing we're like seriously interrogating. Why do we do it? How can we do it better? We all know now, thankfully, that if you don't, you know, if you, you can cut plants to cut plants with a stem of one eighth of an inch to um, if you leave them up for 18 inches that you can get stem nesting bees and use them as habitat. That's wonderful. We've been doing that for years. What else can we do with cutback or not do with cutback that really encourages wildlife, but still reads as a beautiful and cared for park? So we're always looking out for this. We're always looking out for it. And Pavel recently noticed that the red-winged blackbirds that just started nesting in his zone in the wetlands, which was really fortunate. It took years for them to come in and start nesting there. He saw one of them land on a milkweed stem that had been cut to 18 inches and start stripping the fibers off of the milkweed Uh. and then flying away with it in order to build their nest. And so I did some research and it turns out that milkweed stems of all species of milkweed are this really prized nest material. They can get really good, long, strong fibers from the milkweed. And so knowing that, 
you know, why would you take this resource out of your garden? In addition to the stems, you know, the 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 seed heads, the the beautiful silks or floss mm, mm. that we all know and love from the milkweed, that's an incredibly valuable nesting material for for birds as well. And so, you know, my thinking about cutback is that Pete Dolph single-handedly made it cool not to cut back your garden in fall, right? He showed Americans that it was beautiful and acceptable to leave plants up in the fall. And that is now for those of us who are who are trying to do this work, that is like the accepted practice. But there's still this spring cleanup, right? There's still this big process of chopping everything down, raking everything out putting in mulch, et cetera. And we're trying to figure out, number one, is that really necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, number two, are there places where we cannot do that? Right. In the backs of beds. Right. Um, like do it so by we, half. Yeah. You, you've you talked exactly. about, I, I love this concept of this, the cue to care uh, in, in mm-hmm. a public space or even in our home gardens and describe that a little bit. Sure. So that's a phrase that I learned from Mount Cuba, where they also do this work and they um, make sure that people understand and can read aesthetically that this is not neglect, that this, that these more wild spaces that look like our natural, look more like our, our natural habitats, you know, the, the wild spaces that we're fortunate to visit or live among, that, that this is an intentional aesthetic. So what they do in order to translate that is to make sure that it's always edged really well. If that's a hard edge of mulch, if that's a mown lawn around a garden, it just says that this this area is not neglected. It's actually cared for. So we try and do that as well. We, you know, we'll mulch the first foot of a bed. The park entrances are not wild. There are our most formal air quotes around the word formal um, sections of the park and they get mulched. They get everything raked out and mulched. But where we can, you know, in the backs of beds and areas where no one is ever going to see, we really try and let those areas be as undisturbed as possible. Because the reality is that the biggest disturbance in our gardens is often the well-meaning gardeners. That we are in there, we are planting, we are weeding, we are mulching, we're doing all of this stuff. And that's going to change a bed from a place where a bird might nest on the ground to a place where a bird would never be able to do that. And so we're really trying to, to figure out to figure out those practices. You know, this cutting back to 18 inches for our, you know, thicker stemmed herbaceous perennials, the leaving the seed heads on, the not over mulching, the not over disturbing. Are there other techniques that you would offer out to listeners as being um, sort of common sense, but maybe not common practice in our gardens right now. I I remember Mm -hmm. in your talk, one of those that really struck me was the cutting back of bunch grasses in the spring and to leave that skirt around them so that bumblebees uh, who like to nest under those still have their cover, which I had never heard. And it was like, that is that makes so much sense. Totally, and it, that that's a fun one. Um, I think you know it started because we found this bee, this like incredibly rare uh, bee, Bombus fervidus, in our our park, and we were just absolutely yeah, thrilled. thrilled. And we wanted to make sure that we were supporting it in whatever capacity. We found it on flowers. We wanted to find out where they were nesting, and we never were able to actually find their nest. But we do know that the vast majority of bumblebees in the park nest at the base of bunch grasses, and we were. Working with a marvelous um, entomologist at the time 
to think about bee habitat in the park. And so we looked at our practice. We looked at the, the cutback practice again and thought about a hibernating bee in March and what they were doing and where they were. And again, how our garden practices interact with, with those processes. And we thought, okay, normal cutback of a bunch of grass is to take something that has the leftover foliage of the grass. If you think about a panicum, there's the foliage that kind of hangs down around the bunch. It's like a little skirt. And then the old flowering stems which shoot straight up and have the old seed heads on them and historically we would make a nice little neat ball and but when there's a, a bumblebee asleep down there you're cutting away their house and you're arguably stepping on them and so we realized that we could get the same look of you know care taken uh, if we just cut off the top if we just cut it off, and then oftentimes we would leave that material down on the ground to act as a natural mulch. But with, you know, I think a bunch grass is a perfect example of something that really does need cutback. You can't not cut back a bunch grass. In our environment, they will rot. They, they, if they build up too much organic matter, they will rot. And also with a lot of them, they're fire adapted. Yeah. And the the dried uh, material is there to catch on fire. And, you know, in a public park, that's, <laughs> that's a good ecology <laughs> step that we cannot take at this point, at least. So we really do need to do that work. But, but again, how do we uh, use our powers of observation to learn about the animals that are actively using the park and then adapt our gardening practices to it. It's it's really a it's a practice, right? It's not like a bunch of rules that we can share on Facebook, although we do try and do that. It's really a practice of observation, you know, caring, obviously, and getting to know every every garden is going to have a different wildlife community. And so it's just a practice of of watching who comes stalking them relentlessly, identifying them. We use iNaturalist. It's an amazing tool. Identifying them, researching them, and then just watching and then experimenting to try and support them. Give me your five techniques that you want every listener to consider adding to their gardens to increase systematics. Okay. This is a hard one. I mean, certain, there's a bunch of things that people are already doing, right? Like there's uh, planting native plants. And, and so I'm not going to include those because people already know that stuff. Exactly. I think that leaving the leaves is a really important one. And most people know that one as well, but it's very, very important uh, because there's so much of the wildlife that we are trying to invite into our gardens live in that leaf layer. So that's number one. Number two, I would say is a different view of integrated pest management or pests in general. Uh, we really invite in biology and that's a strategy for keeping diseases and pests at bay. We, instead of trying to maintain a sterile environment, which is a joke and impossible, we just invite everybody in and try and make it as healthy as possible for the organisms that we want to live in our gardens. And then they are the organisms that then keep the pests at bay. It's sort of like the difference between uh, antibiotics and probiotics. And we've seen over and over that even just, just last week, we have... Um, we have this goldfish population in one of the wetlands that is is a huge headache and they, you know, eat frog eggs that we're trying to get established. And we just had an egret come in and eat like most of the goldfish. And so when you invite in biology, there's like a balance that happens. And we'll see one year there will be 
a Japanese beetle boom and the next year it's gone. One year there will be a viburnum leaf beetle boom and the next year it's gone because when we build up these populations of herbivores, it allows the predators to then come in and keep them in check. So that's that would be number two, would be the IPM thing. Um, number three, I think is really, as I was saying earlier, just cut back as little as possible. Disturb your gardens as little as possible. Do it under rotation every other year. See if you can rotate sections that you do. There was a great study out of St. Louis that looked at, at pollinator abundance by uh, neighborhood income. And they found that the least amount of money that a neighborhood had, the more pollinators they had. And that was because those people weren't caring for their gardens. And so it's, <laughs> you know, it's us, right? It's like this sad reality that we are the ones who are often causing the disturbance. We try and be as resourceful as possible with water for obvious reasons. And so we are constantly digging holes and seeing how deep the water goes and seeing how deep the roots of our plants go. And there's this joke that, you know, the Parks Department is always watering in the rain. They're like, ha ha, those foolish people. But it's actually really smart to water in the rain because you, if you need your water to go down 12 inches and you're getting a light rain that gets it down six inches, the best thing you can do is continue watering in that environment and get that, get that water down even deeper into the root zone. So we are constantly managing the water in that way. And we try and keep our soils from getting hydrophobic. Once your soils go hydrophobic, it is mm. so hard to get them so back. Hard. Even mm -hmm. in a drought, you want to maintain some level of moisture in your soils. If you're, if you're worried about using water wisely, you must water when soils are on the risk of going hydrophobic. Yeah. And it is interesting. And I think that's really important to note at this moment that every garden is different. Every climate is different. In my region, I can hear people saying, well, you know, I have to clear for fire. So I, I, I have to remove some of the leaves. I have to cut back some of the, the fuel. And so the question then becomes, how can you not remove all of it? How can you mm -hmm. leave little islands of um, leaf litter and little islands of grasses that aren't cut right back? And so that you aren't leaving yourself open to fire or, you know, it, it might be a different um, consideration for places of flood. Uh, and so this is the point, is get into the practice of knowing not just the creatures, because the creatures aren't in isolation either. It's, as you say, it's how do these creatures react and and work in community with these plants who then build the soil, who then help, you know, create these spaces that provide us with food and shade and shelter. And, and that observation and practice of of understanding and interpreting correctly. And if you, you know, if you get it wrong the first time, try again and and figure out what went wrong because I'm listening to your stories of these things and your failures are are actually your your greatest successes as well, it seems to me. I mean, would you say that's true? Uh yeah. I mean, I think it's it's all part of the learning practice and I think it goes back to what you said before, which is just balance, right? It is all a practice of finding balance. And this really is a practice. We have our own thresholds. Every garden is going to have a different threshold for what is aesthetically acceptable, how much of, of leaves can be, you know, eaten before the public notices or, or whomever, whoever's in charge or you care, you know? And I think for us, we do have to remove leaves. We do have to cut back in many areas of the park, but we're always looking for the ways that we can 
fit this work into our practice. So there's another gardener, Bella, who manages a flower field that is an acre and a half, or I'm sorry, a half acre of native wildflowers out on Pier 6. And it's just beautiful. And she is another person who cares deeply about ecology. And she, we have these gorgeous mallows, these big, lovely mallows. And she noticed that there were 27 species of butterflies and moths that will use the mallows. If they're visiting, if they're nesting in the stem, if they're boring in the stems, there's so many different animals that will use these stems that which we just take out every year. So she did an experiment where she looked at the stems and tried to sculpt them, selectively remove broken stems or bent stems and see what she could leave. And the result is just stunningly beautiful. It's sculptural. Mm. And it is, I think, a, a huge victory for this shift in aesthetic. And we really consider that one of our jobs, right? It's it's about changing the practice, but it's also about changing people's ideas of what is aesthetically acceptable and even beautiful. Beautiful, right? right. Like, yeah. A lot of people still cling to this idea that a garden has to be fundamentally different from nature in order to be beautiful. And so we're trying to reintroduce these aesthetics to people, these natural aesthetics that are, of course, highly managed, right? Like there's a hypocrisy here or an irony where this is highly managed stuff. But we're just introducing this to people to say this, you know, in spring, not everything is always green for the month, month of uh, April. There's still brown left in that landscape, and that can be gorgeous. And once you know those stems are supporting the the babies or the nests of these other animals that we love, they they look beautiful because you you read them as supportive. I think that again is about this, you know, developing our own cultural literacy and learning from many, many different teachers, the plants, the creatures, one another spaces we enjoy and admire. Yeah. Um, and then I would love for you to point listeners in the direction of some of the resources, because, you know, as I mentioned, I have questions every single week about where can I learn more? Where can I find ecological landscapers? How can I become one? All of these things. I believe you have some digital resources. Tell us about those. So during COVID, when the Hort team was sent home, we were fortunate enough to all work on our databases and protocols for, for doing this work specifically. So we created incredible resources for everyone to use that are posted at the Brooklyn Bridge Park uh, website, which we'll provide a link for. There's databases on weeds of hundreds and hundreds of the weeds in the park, where they come from, how to manage them. Are there seeds light germinated or are they triggered by moisture? Uh, how long do the seeds persist in the landscape? That's an incredible database that I use literally every day. We also made a database of 250 native plants that are adapted for urban conditions. There's a myth out there that urban environments are so different than our native environments that only exotic plants could possibly survive here. And that's a joke to us who do this work. And so we decided to share them. There's, it's, you know, native broadly defined. It, there's going to be plenty of plants that are native to the West Coast on the list. And again, this is the sort of thing that we would love to see grow. It would be wonderful to have other people add to this list and, and to start this as a shared project. Yeah. Yeah. 
We also have a, a very nascent uh, encyclopedia of park wildlife that we are starting with photos and information about all the butterflies and ants and, and everything like that, nice. that we're getting up there. And um, as well as databases of all recorded moths, butterflies, bees so far, those are the ones that are posted and we're working on all of the other like ants and beetles and and stuff birds is up as well birds birds is up and we have a wonderful park birder who who helps us with that database but all this information is meant so that uh we're trying to capture how those animals interact with the landscape so we did a bunch of research online but we've also gathered all of our observations about their behaviors in the park nice. and so it's it's a work in progress it's all really messy and hasn't been edited but we just wanted to get it up just and get out, it there out there for people yeah, yeah it's going to be on the website but the it might be best honestly to follow me on instagram because anytime that stuff is updated, I will be posting about it and providing links as links change as well. And I will, I will give all of those links in the write-up. And then finally, one last question. Um, And then you just tell me when you have to go, but how is Brooklyn Bridge Park funded? Ooh, that is a, that's a great question. It is, it is very interesting. So the reason why this park was able to be built was because Mike Bloomberg came up, he was our mayor. Um, He came up with a, a method for the park to be funded. And Unlike other parks, and we, we brought in um, capital money, city money, state money in order to build the park. But our operating budget is very high due to the demands of all of those pilings in the park. They, the, there's this slightly funny tangential story where, um, you know, before the 70s, there, there were wood pilings and they were just fine in the water. But then there was the Clean Water Act. And it cleaned up the the water in which the park uh, sits on top of. And all these little crustaceans came in and started eating the pilings. And then now the park may have fallen down. And we lost. We lost piers that um, either had to be rebuilt or or just like gone. Pier 4 doesn't exist. Right. You can see it in the overview is that there's a <laughs> yeah. one or two gone. Yeah. It's like a missing tooth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um so yeah, so our our maintenance, our our operating budget is pretty high, and it is self-generated. The ten percent of the footprint of the park is earmarked for revenue generation. So we own the land here that we allow businesses to come in and build a hotel or a condo, and then they pay us rent, et cetera. And so that is the the park itself is self-funded. Wow. That's awesome. That is a fantastic model if you can have the space to allow for both, right? And exactly. But that the important, you know, it's an important question because if we don't have the money to value these spaces, then they aren't cared for properly. And then people think they don't have the bottom line. And then you move to these, you know, contract systems where it's in and out and mow and blow. And we have to figure out the models and we're bright people. So we can figure them out. We just have to put our heads to it is how do we value the people that care for these spaces and these spaces to their full, uh, their full deserve. Absolutely. When I think about, you know, you're being the director of this public space and I, I think about, you know, people who are trying to deal with budgets and, and balance pressure on a space. Um, what occurs to me is that you have so many different audiences that you are serving there, Rebecca. You are serving the the, the incredibly diverse human population of New York um, and Brooklyn, but you are also serving these 
these plants and these creatures and these, you know, synthetic moving or uh, engineered moving to evolved soils and uh, watersheds that are, again, created, but evolving to be on their own. Um, when you When you think about this last year and all of those audiences, you think about the lockdown and you think about, you know, long overdue social and political resets. Have have your personal missions or those of the park changed or intensified in light of those concepts? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, um, people have always used parks for major life events, even before COVID. Mm. People would come here to get married and celebrate big things. There's this corner where I've accidentally walked up on um, two separate couples in the act of getting engaged. Um, Yeah, it's really pretty. Um, But it's also a critical space. Parks in general are a really critical space for tragedy. And, you know, a park is where you go when a loved one dies. There's a basic human need to get away from other people and connect to the things that are larger Mm. and more complicated Mm. than us to be reminded that we are part of something greater than our complicated little lives. And And in a city that's a park with big trees and pathways for exploration uh, and this marvelous expanse of water here. And so it's really profound um, and important. And I think, you know, we're, we're all public servants, right? This, we get into this work intentionally. No one just accidentally gets into public horticulture. We consider public service part of our duties. And it just became so obviously critical during COVID where there was this really amazing thing that happened in parks where you have not only is it safe to be in a park comparatively to everything else, it is a safe place from this pandemic. But aside from the pandemic, you also had a very serious epidemic of isolation that people were dealing with mental health crises. And parks, again, became this place where people could connect. And so absolutely, this park, you know, a lot of us were able to spend COVID, the the first few months of COVID at home, and only the essential workers in the park were here, and they were keeping the park clean, and they were keeping it open and safe, and their jobs especially were just shown to be so important, just absolutely integral to the way that this city runs, and I I feel very fortunate that I work at a park that understands that and, and treats people with respect and dignity, but it I think just parks across the land were able to to really care for people in a way that uh, I I feel very grateful that we were able to provide that. Is there anything about any of this, the importance of parks, the importance of horticulture, the importance of valuing our horticultural uh, workers in this world? Is there anything you would like to add? I think that there's within horticulture there's all different kinds of business models right there's there's public parks there's private landscapers there's designers there's homeowners there's all different types of ways that people practice horticulture but i think when you do this kind of work specifically you can't do it in an environment where people are not self-actualized you must 
if you're doing it with a crew, if you're if you're doing it with a team of people, those people need to be emotionally and intellectually engaged. They need to have good jobs. They need to um, feel dedicated to their work. And I think a lot of horticulture is still stuck in a sadly exploitative business model of, you know, very similar to agriculture. And a lot of commercial and and public horticulture happens with contract labor. And I just want to make it clear that you just can't do this work (laughs) with contract labor. It's about the connections that people as individuals have to a place and so you just have to form them like the, the you know, the, you, the people need to have the freedom and the interest in order to form those connections themselves. You can't tell someone to do that. And so if you're interested in doing this work, if you're interested in in having it done, um, it's very important to to treat the people in a way that allows them the integrity in order to do the work. And I think that that, especially in this country with the history of the way that manual labor specifically has been treated, it's very important to take an intentional intentional stance um, to to treat people with, with dignity and respect. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I am so excited to share your voice and the model there at Brooklyn Bridge Park as a resource and model for other people to visit, to learn from, and uh, really excited to watch its next decade of growth and uh, development. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Rebecca McMacken is an ecologically focused horticulturalist and garden designer. She has been the director of horticulture for Brooklyn Bridge Park this past decade. She and her horticultural team care for the diversity of life within this 85-acre parkland organically and with an eye towards habitat creation for birds, butterflies, and soil microorganisms, as well as visiting humans. My conversation with Rebecca was quite a bit longer than we could fit on air in its entirety. For our full conversation, including her top five techniques to include in your home garden practice in order to encourage ecology and ecological systems, Rebecca McMacken writes about landscape management and pollination ecology. She has served on the board of the Ecological Landscape Alliance, and she currently serves as the vice president of the Metro Hort Group in New York City. Listen in next week when we say farewell to the fullness of summer at its calendar end with the wonderful sounds of a summer garden concert series, not only held in, but inspired by Capital Public Radio's Garden of Season and Meaning in Sacramento, California. We're in conversation with Jennifer Reason, musician and classical music host there, and the Summer Garden Concert Director, as well as with Capital Public Radio's Garden Coordinator, Nicole McDavid. Join us for these sweet summer garden sounds. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. 
To read more and see many images of Brooklyn Bridge Park's remarkable, innovative, and habitat-rich repurposing of post-industrial shipping piers, head to this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.